Hi, welcome to another episode of Up To. Eight years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives, and in doing so, have found that there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host, as always, is Adam Kaufman, and our guest today is Fred Corey. He is the founder of Smart Business Network, which is both a magazine and a live event series that caters to and is a tremendous resource to mid-market executives, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, and so on. Fred is involved in many other aspects of business as well, and we'll hear more about that from our host, Adam Kaufman, in just a moment. Fred Corey will talk about his family and about growing up. We'll learn how he has navigated the timing of opportunities that he's been presented with and what his process is for thoughtfully weighing those opportunities. Adam and Fred will talk about mentorship and the importance of real caring for people, even in the context of business. Fred will share one of his favorite poems with us and talk about the role that faith plays in his life, both in personal ways and business endeavors. Toward the end of the interview, we'll hear a real story when Fred decided to humble himself in order to resolve a difficult business situation. And finally, Fred will give his younger self some advice. We're glad you've joined us here on the Up To Podcast. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To Podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the Up To Podcast, and here's your host, Adam Kaufman. Our guest today is entrepreneur Fred Corey. Fred founded Smart Business Network in 1989 with a single business magazine in Cleveland, Ohio. He has since built the company into a national multimedia and events business focused on middle market business owners and executives. The company's diverse operations include monthly management journals and SBNOnline.com, which features more than 20,000 management and leadership articles on such successful CEOs as Jack Welch, Michael Dell, Ted Turner, and Steve Wozniak. After building a reputation as a leading provider of CEO to CEO content, SBN launched the Smart Business Dealmakers Institute to provide M&A education and networking for middle market business owners. The Institute provides ongoing coverage of dealmaking activity in cities throughout the United States. And each year that coverage culminates in a Smart Business Dealmakers Conference attended by hundreds of prominent entrepreneurs, investors, and advisors involved in local mergers and acquisitions. And I've attended these conferences, they're terrific. The events share best practices on raising capital and every aspect of buying, growing, or selling a company. On the personal side, Fred has served on numerous boards, including major organizations like the United Way, Cuyahoga Community College Foundation, the National Conference for Community and Justice, and St. George Antiochian Orthodox Church. He also serves on a regional bank board, and he's a graduate of Bowling Green State University, having also done graduate work at Ohio State University. 
Fred is a husband and father of two young men. Fred Corey, welcome to Up To. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me on the podcast this morning. What have you been up to? Well, a lot of exciting things. What are you most excited about right now as we kick off this new year? I'm excited about uh, the economy right now. I think for our business, we are in the process of expanding our dealmaker conference across the country and building a national network of middle market people interested in M&A. And the market is so hot right now uh, with the economy. There's a trillion dollars on the sidelines and people are looking at doing deals and we're right in the middle of it. M&A mergers and acquisitions. So are those the types of people who come to this Dealmakers Conference? Who attends? Correct. We do something called the Smart Business Dealmakers Conference. It brings together four to 500 people around uh, the M&A space. Bankers, attorneys, Exactly. Our goal is to have about a third president owners and CEOs, another third M&A advisors, another third from the private equity venture capital space for a day-long event around uh, learning best practices. We have 40 to 50 speakers of people that have bought and sold companies, and they'll share their experiences. And so this is a great place to bring people together to meet one another, as well as get educated on the whole process of buying and selling a company. I know you were kind enough to have me participate in one of your early dealmakers events, and I interviewed uh, one of the earliest employees of Google, and I was so impressed with the caliber of people there. The number was impressive, the number of people, but there were a large number of very successful, very busy people who were taking almost a full day out of their busy lives to be at your conference. You must be delivering some sort of good value. I think we have a very targeted niche. Uh, Our focus is the middle market. We describe that as companies that have 10 to 500 million in revenues. Um, They represent about 10% of the marketplace, but about 60% of the purchasing power. And so it's an audience that's very active. They're wheeling and dealing, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Deal makers. That's right right at the heart of it. Well, we're going to delve a lot into your career, but if it's okay with you, I like to kind of set the stage for our listeners a little bit and learn more about you. And one of my mentors uh, taught me that we're all born into somebody else's story. So let's back up a little bit. Whose story were you born into? I come from a Lebanese background. Beautiful. I was born in uh, Lorain, Ohio, industrial town. Great family. My father was an attorney, uh, still is an attorney. Mother was a homemaker with uh, four siblings and a family and a very blue-collar town. Mm -hmm. And it was all about relationships. Where were you in the uh, siblings, uh, oldest, youngest? Uh, Second oldest in the family. Okay. And uh, grew up in, in this blue-collar town and from very early age learned what it was like to operate on the streets, so to speak. Really? I want to delve into that a little bit. Now, your mother was Miss Lebanon. Your father, like you said, a successful attorney, respected uh, political figure, too, as well he became. So does that mean you were a picture-perfect student growing up? No, I would say I was your student that had a very short attention span. I was always interested in uh, not so much about learning from a book standpoint, but more of wanting to do something. Mm-hmm. I was very active mm-hmm. and thus at a very early age became entrepreneurial, so to speak. So there were some early signs, I was going to ask that, that you might want to kind of do your own thing or run your own business someday. Any early projects that shed light on that? A couple of cute stories. My father used to pay me $10 a week to cut the grass. We had a riding lawnmower. As soon as you'd leave, I'd pay the neighbor $5 to cut the grass, and I'd drink an iced tea on the porch. How old were you then? I was probably about 11 years old at the time, 12 years old. That's spectacular. And then on that riding lawnmower, I'd, I'd tie a wagon onto the back of it, and uh, we'd go to the discount store and buy a lot of gum and candy, and I'd have my sister sit in the back of the wagon, and I'd, I would drive the driving lawnmower around the block, and she would be selling stuff out of the back of that. People would be lined up to buy stuff, and uh, we'd make profit doing that, and I'd give my sister a little bit of the money. 
So that was definitely an early indication that you were going to be uh, creatively thinking of your own ways to, to make a few dollars. I was interested in buying and selling. And then you got into high school and college, and were you continuing to experiment with you know how to make money? Yes. Yeah, so when I went to college, I was a finance major in college. I minored in accounting, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. So many kids knew exactly what they were going to do, which I envied. This one was going to go to law school. This one was going to go to med school. This one was going to get a job in sales. And as my senior year was running out of time, I had to buy some more time. So the next obvious step is to try to go to law school because my father was a lawyer. Stay in school longer. So I made a decision to take the LSAT test and apply to law school. Unfortunately, I applied too late and I had to sit out a year. Mm. So I went to Ohio State and took some classes there. And while I was in classes there, my brother-in-law, who was in the seafood business in Boston at the time, asked me if I would sell for him part-time. So while I was in school, I started selling for him part-time, and I was selling fish. You were selling in Boston or in Ohio? I was selling in Ohio. I was selling, While you were a student. Exactly. I was selling the grocery store chains that were in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. And I landed a couple of big accounts, and I, I didn't realize at the time, but I was a salesman. Mm. I, even though I was a finance major, I was well, a salesman. Well, Lebanese, we're Phoenician, we're marketers. Yes, I think that helps. I, I never had a problem with no. No to me was they just weren't sold yet. I had to keep selling them. So I landed an account, and uh, my brother-in-law flew in and offered me a full-time job. So I quit school. I never went to law school, and I ended up going to business with him. So you're like 20 at this point. Uh, I was about 22 at this point. This okay. was after college. Okay. And I started selling fish. I wholesaled seafood to grocery store chains across the country. And we went from two states to about 30 states over the next four years. I headed up sales for the company. Forgive me for interrupting, but was that a big decision to leave school? and to go full bore into working full-time? It was. You know, I, I made a couple of commission checks, and I saw it as more of a quicker way to get to the path of where I was trying to get to versus going to law school and studying for three more years and then, you know, taking the bar exam. So I decided to take a risk. I know at the time my father was a little concerned that I was mm -hmm. making the right decision or not. But once I made that decision, they supported it. And I became very good at it because I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. Naivete is good sometimes. The only problem with this, I never liked selling fish. So even though I did it for four years, I reluctantly did it. The money kept me there and the loyalty to my brother-in-law. But eventually, you know, I didn't want to sell it anymore. So I was ready to take a leap of faith and try something else. Four years, though, that's amazing that you were good at something and you did it for so long, but you didn't like it. Yes. A lot of our listeners are in jobs they don't love and... They sometimes send me notes about how they get encouragement. So what would you tell someone who's maybe in a role and they have ideas like it sounds like you had to go off and do your own thing? Like what would you tell those people who are considering uh, taking the risk? I would say you have to take that step of faith. You know, I did. I um, I remember there was never a good time to do it. Never I'm, a convenient time. Yeah. Right. I'm a timing person. I always like to wait for the right timing. But in this particular case, uh, there wasn't a good time to do it. So I had to take a step of faith. And um, I decided that this was the time to do it. And even though I didn't have anything else to take a step of faith into, really, I knew that it would be better. Uh, I couldn't look for something while I had something else going on. And the added dynamic of it involving family. So you had to tell your brother-in-law, I'm going to leave now in spite of it going well. Well, what are you going to do next, brother-in-law? Uh, I'm not sure yet, I guess you said. That was very difficult because I was successful and it wasn't an easy job to replace. But I did give him a six-month notice and tried to give him plenty of time to be able to replace me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then in that six-month period, is that when you came up with your idea of what to start first? Or did it take a lot of exploration to analyze the marketplace and come up with an idea? I had a fraternity brother that was working for me in the fish business at the time. And he put his notice in six months earlier, and he wanted to start a boating magazine. And so I helped back him in that magazine. 
and I was a silent partner with him and I would help sell the advertising once a month. And so I had that little business going on the side. We had this little publishing business. Uh, The problem with that business is the boating magazine was too small of a niche. I remember it rained every day that summer, the luxury, luxury tax hit. It wasn't the right niche. So, you know, we knew that was coming to an end. We met another gentleman and it was the three of us that actually founded SBN, you know, Smart Business Today. So let me understand, when you started the boating magazine, was that more about a passion for boating or because you trusted this fraternity brother friend of yours? I was always intrigued with the publishing industry. Publishing. Okay, so you knew you liked publishing. I did. Which makes sense because you've now been doing it for 30 years. Yes. My father was involved with the Horvitz family, a very well-known family in in the media industry. And I just remember that uh, whenever I was around him, he always said, if there's a way to get into this industry, it's a great industry to get into. So I saw that as a way for me to pivot into this industry. And did you lean on your father's exposure with his colleagues, the Horvitzes and others, as you started learning this new industry? Or were you just off to the races at that point, did your own thing? Just off to the races. We created this business magazine, and the concept behind it was to tell people stories, uh, kind of hometown heroes. The weekly business journals were already out in the marketplace, but Mm -hmm. they were more transactional news. Our niche was basically, let's tell the story of the entrepreneur who's running the company. And what kind of culture do they have? And what's their thought process behind doing mergers and acquisitions? And uh, what do they think about debt? And that was the thought process behind the publication that we started. I was going to ask you why you focused on small business at the start. And you've kind of already answered that. And I hadn't thought about that before. Here we are telling stories today in this new format, digital format of podcasting, long form conversation that's become so popular. This whole industry has but people do love telling their story and others like hearing stories and we can learn from them. So by the way, thank you for telling your story a little bit today. Is this your first podcast incidentally? Oh, yes, it is. Okay. You comfortable? You doing okay? Sure. Okay. (laughs) So you started first with small business. It was a print magazine. It was in one city, Cleveland, and then you started expanding, I imagine, first in Ohio and then beyond. Yes. So small business, the reason why we called it small business news at the time when we founded the company 30 years ago was because 97% of the companies out there employed 50 workers or less. That's when deregulation was hitting and all these small businesses were starting up. And so it was a hot niche at the time. Mm -hmm. So over the next four to five years, we had started a number of different publications. So you identified a marketplace opportunity at this point. There's a little more science involved. It was a great niche at the time. But what we ended up seeing happening over the course of the five years is that nine out of 10 of those businesses would go out of business and that they were becoming uh, very hard to serve and uh, they were hard to collect payments. And so we identified the middle market as the growth market that people really weren't paying that much attention to. Okay, a little more sustainable businesses that have scaled up. Yes. So by that time, we had pivoted in 1994 into that middle market uh, audience, 94, 95. And at that time, I bought both of my partners out. And that was about 25 years ago. And we repositioned the company to focus on the middle market. I've always been impressed with how you seem to be continually evaluating if you're in the right business, in the right sector, using the latest technology. So even 25 years ago, you were transitioning away from small business to middle market. I'm reminded of much later in time, more recently, maybe it was about 10 years ago now, maybe a little less, you said, Adam, I'm going to buy a video company. And I was so wrong. I was like, Fred, CEOs, they're not going to watch a video busy, affluent entrepreneurs. They're not going to watch video. This is pre-YouTube. I was totally wrong. You were totally right. Do you remember when we talked about this? Yes, I do. (laughs) Well, thanks for not reminding me about (laughs) it too often. But 
Where do you think that innovation in you comes from that you're always evaluating, whether it's 25 years ago or getting into video or the new things now with the Dealmakers Conference? You're always, might I say, paranoid about, am I missing the next big thing or do I have an opportunity for the next big thing? I think when I took that step of faith back in uh, 1989, that I was given an opportunity. And when we're given an opportunity, we need to make the most of it. Mm -hmm. And so my drive has always come from fear of failure and survival. And so when you're in that mentality that um, that you can't fail, that failing is not an option. Failing is not an option. And that you have to succeed at all costs and that you're in that survival mode mentality, it has you always looking ahead. And how do you actually look ahead? Are you reading certain publications? Do you attend conferences outside your industry? I know you believe a lot in mentors. I want to talk about that a little bit. So you have advisors that you get help from, but how do you kind of stir the pot of your own innovative thinking? Yeah, there was a poem, Rupert Kipling said they followed all You're they could. breaking out poetry today? That's awesome. They followed all they could follow, but they couldn't follow my mind. I left them sweating and stealing miles and miles behind. Don't quote me exactly on that, but it means that you can only learn so much, but then you have to continue to take the step ahead of where you're learning from people. So I do, I get the opportunity to be surrounded by some of the best and brightest minds I get to understand and learn best practices about the people that we're continually mm -hmm. writing about in our right. publications. Right. And I get a chance to meet wonderful people. And we're all given a different lot in life. And there's been times I've wished, hey, I don't I don't want to be in this industry anymore. I wish I was in, you know, this industry over here. I wish I had a software company or I wish I was doing something over here. And I remember one time you thought about dipping into the private equity world and starting your own fund. I did. That's another consideration. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's important to stay in your own lane and stay in what you know. So I've still had the opportunity to invest in funds like that. But at the end, I stayed in what I know. And what I know is content. One of my mentors keeps reminding me, grow where your roots are. That's great. That's what you decided to do when not doing the PE fund, but instead growing your, your publication and media business. Do you think that it's still a talent? I mean, you're so humble, so you're, you're not going to say this is a talent of yours, but it clearly is. Because you can take the ideas from the other people. You have exposure to these sharp leaders. But you have to still filter those ideas and decide which ones to pursue or not. Correct? Correct. And how do you think that skill can be improved upon? Like, have you ever taken someone's advice that was bad advice? And if so, did you learn from that? Sure. We all make mistakes. I think I've made a lot of mistakes. But one of the things I try to do now is before I would use my gut a lot to make decisions. Now what I tend to do is uh, do the pros and cons on a whiteboard. Mm -hmm. If I'm thinking about doing something, I'll definitely do the pros and cons um, on the different scenarios and think things through before I'll just act on something right now with my gut. My gut's gotten me into trouble now and then. Also, wisdom comes from an abundance of counselors. I was going to say that. And so that's important as well is to seek out, and, and we should each have that core group of people, which I'm sure we do, mm -hmm. around us that we can trust and that mm -hmm. we can open up to and get their advice from. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we don't like what they have to say. Um, you brought up that uh, the fund. I, I wanted to create a fund of funds. I was all excited about creating one. And one day, my wife and I, we went to go talk to somebody that was doing a fund. And the first thing he said is, uh, how much time do you plan on spending on this business? I said, well, a lot of my time, but not all my time, I have an existing company. And he said, well, when you take money from family and friends, you better spend every single second of your waking time on that business. He goes, I have to see the people that I take money from on the 50-yard line at college football games. I see it at, at family holidays. And as soon as he said that comment, 
you know, my wife looked over at me and she knew that I wasn't able to do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I got my answer and, and she was, uh, it was confirmed with her because she didn't think I should be involved with that to begin with. And I was very disappointed at the time. So even though I didn't want to hear that, it was good that, you know, wisdom comes from an abundance of counselors that I was able to hear truth being spoken to me at that time. Two things I take away from that are one, great advice. Our mutual friend, uh, Eric Chen, tells me the same thing. He's the founder of a Palo Alto-based venture fund that um, he feels he needs to be thinking about it all day, every day, because it's a major responsibility to take other people's hard-earned money and to put it into high-risk investing. So my takeaway is, one, good advice, but two, you showed humility by asking people what they think. A lot of successful CEOs, I know many, do well in their one line of work, whatever their industry is, whatever widget they're making, and they think usually wrongly, that therefore they know how to distribute other people's money in other industries because they've been successful in their one business. Have have you met people like that? Sure. I mean, I think I've done that before as well, just made decisions uh, in a vacuum that have gotten me in trouble. So I've tried to learn from that now over time as I've grown and got older Mm -hmm. to make sure that I don't make knee-jerk reactions anymore. You're listening to the Up To Podcast. We'll be right back. Right now, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, a full-service corporate law firm with attorneys throughout Ohio and in Washington, D.C. Calfee's mission has been to provide meaningful legal and business counsel to entrepreneurs and investors, private business owners and nonprofits, public corporations. I've referred many successful entrepreneurs and investors to Calfee knowing how well they'd be taken care of. And it's for those reasons that I would encourage you to visit their website, Calfee.com. That's C-A-L-F-E-E.com. Thank you very much to Calfee. During the first season of the Up To podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make happily is to partner with Vivid Front, a full-service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals, and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc. Magazine Top 5,000 Fastest Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent, they're known for their creativity, they're known for their culture, a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show. Check out vividfront.com or you can email me and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Welcome back. You're listening to the Up To Podcast with Adam Kaufman. Today's guest, Fred Corey. I love events and going back to your Dealmakers Conference there seems to be something really resonating because this has grown somewhat quickly in a lot of cities, not just in the Midwest either, where you're selling out these massive conferences, bringing in terrific content. What do you think's going well? Do you spend much time actually thinking about it or are you just operationally getting them all done? But I wonder big picture, what's resonating with the attendees that has led to this success? I think from a big picture standpoint, our goal is to build out the Smart Business Dealmakers Institute. Smart Business Dealmakers Institute. Yes. Okay. What's that going to be? And that's building a network of middle market CEOs 
that are interested around M&A, not only on a local basis, but on a national basis. Okay. And so with these events, what we do, when we go to a city, we don't just bring an event. We start off by bringing a newsletter. Uh, to, digital, right? Uh, it's a digital newsletter to the M&A community. Okay. And what we do is we track deal flow on a weekly basis of what's bought and sold in the local marketplace. And okay. we feature different M&A advisors or experts. Players in that Players in the space. Mm -hmm. So we're bringing that local content and knowledge there. In addition to that, we also are putting on this event. We're bringing the local deal makers together for a one-day event. And then we are connecting those people after the event, you know, with each other. So it's got evergreen content. Keeps going. Yeah, we don't want it to just be a one and done. So you're in like Chicago, St. Louis, Philadelphia. I can't keep track of all the expanding markets you're in. Yeah, so this this year we'll be in we'll be in twelve markets with the smart business deal makers: uh, Cleveland, Columbus, Pittsburgh, uh, Detroit, Philly, Chicago, Charlotte, St. Louis, Nashville, Baltimore, and Kansas. Wow! And um, congratulations. The twelfth ones escaped me. I think Milwaukee, and then the following year we'll be opening up six more. Our goal is to get into twenty five markets. So twelve plus six more, so fifty percent growth in one year. Uh, the following year, yes, in 2021. That's that's significant growth. Yes. Do you have to ramp up people for that, or do you find good experts in each city? Uh, yes, well, we continue to have, always looking for great people, mm -hmm. always looking for great people, investing in talent. Well, I know you invest in talent. I've met a lot of your Sharp team. I know also, though, you invest a lot of time in mentoring, both as a mentor and as a mentee. Can you talk a little bit about why you think mentoring is so important? Well, when I think about people that have given me time, people that speak at our conferences, like yourself, uh, you had brought uh, the gentleman from Google to our conference, and the people that have volunteered, the people that we write stories about, they're willing to lend their experiences to us. Mm -hmm. It's about giving back. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, you know, what I have to give back is what people have sown into me. I'm willing to share with somebody else. It's really a, a cycle of giving. Absolutely. Now that people have invested in us to pay it forward to other people as well. How do you decide who you help? Because it can get never ending. You know, it's a bit of a tap dance to decide how much you're going to help someone or not. Do you just help ad nauseum or do you do a little bit of selective assistance? How does that? I'm intentional about uh, who and how and when I spend time with. I, I carve out uh, Friday afternoons. Mm -hmm. Also, towards the end of the day, I'll meet with certain individuals. Okay. I try to keep work hours for work hours. That's smart. So you carve out a certain day of the week or half day. I do. And then there's certain folks that I'm willing to meet with. And sometimes it's people for a reason. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a season and sometimes it can be a lifetime that people that I'm still engaged with over the course of time. A lot of times I'm willing to invest into it based on what somebody else is willing to invest into themselves. Sure. So if I see somebody's very serious about it and they're calling me and they want to meet and they keep sending you know, follow-up, those are the folks that I'll take more seriously, people that are very good about following up versus somebody that's, you know, sends you kind of a one-time email and for some reason or another doesn't do a good job of following up. I totally know what you mean. Just last week, uh, a peer of mine just had his son send me a note without any kind of background about what school he went to or what he wanted to study. He was just looking for an internship. And I, having never met the son, only knowing the father, I sent a note back out of respect to the father. Give me an idea of what types of industries you want to be in or even size of company or geography. I asked him like some follow-up question before I just started peppering him with CEO's phone numbers and email addresses. And he never followed up. He didn't even follow up with like the little bit of homework I gave him. So to me, that demostrated kind of like a lack of seriousness in wanting the help. It's kind of like, is that like what you're talking exactly. about? Exactly. 
Exactly. You've also, speaking of your extracurricular life beyond work, you and I share a fondness for political affairs a little bit, uh, whether it's backing a candidate or just um, being knowledgeable on current events. What does politics do for you in your life? Why do you spend time in political affairs? You know, I spend a lot less time now than I did in the past. I'd say the last 10 years, I've really withdrawn myself from politics. Is that related to like the family growth and your boys now? I think it's just being involved with it and going to the highest level of it and getting a chance to meet presidents face to face. You were at the highest level. I know you won't talk about it, but you were. Well, and getting a chance to see the inside look of what's happening there and the lobbyists that really control everything in Washington. Right. And um, we all have different issues and items uh, that we care about, that we care about and that we're passionate about, but it's gotten to the place where right now people are very hostile. It's a hostile environment that you can't bring things up and just be able to talk to one another about certain issues. So I've chosen to kind of leave that behind right now because I think it's important to stay focused. Like when we talk about our company and I tell all the employees of my company, we're pro-economy, we're Mm pro-jobs, we're Mm pro-business. That's our agenda. And that's the business that we're in. As far as politics go, if you want to talk about it or address it, do that outside of the office because that's not where we're at inside the office. Didn't at one time, I mean, you were really involved in politics early on. Didn't you even get recruited to maybe run for office? Was a party flirting with you about running for office? I, I was asked to run for senator at one time. and um, U.S. senator. U.S. senator at one time. That's a big deal. It, it was a big deal Did at the time. Did you consider that? I, I, I slightly considered it. Um, when I took a look, I think a lot of times it sounds more glamorous than what it is. And um, after having a chance to do the pros and cons like I talked to you about, to me— it made the most sense to continue just to stay doing what I was doing and uh, stay focused in business. Do you think that's in your future at all? I know you just said you're somewhat displeased with the current tone in uh, American political affairs, but do you think there's a future for you in politics at all? Uh, no intentions uh, of, of running for office. We don't know God's plan though, right? We don't. Anything's possible. Well, what are you most excited about right now? I kind of asked a version of that at the beginning, but what gives you hope as you look forward? I think one of the things that excites me right now is uh, growing this company, uh, not only for my sake, but for uh, the employee's sake, the people that work at the company. I've had a lot of loyal employees that have been with me for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I want everybody to be able to prosper from what we're doing. And I think right now we are in a time of uh, prosperity where the economy is booming right now. Sure is. It's been about 10 years. And I think we have to continue to capitalize on that. Now is the time to capitalize on it. Uh, we don't know what it's going to be like uh, six months from now, a year from now, or even five years from now. But right now— Hit the accelerator. Have to hit the accelerator. Well, do you think that hitting of the accelerator, does that change strategy? I don't know if you do like a one-year plan or a three-year or five-year plan. Different companies have different types of strategic plans, or is it really month-to-month? Different styles. There's no like wrong way to do it. Um, we like to operate three years out. Three years, uh, okay. Yeah, we like to operate three years out in terms of how we grow the company. We're a family-first company. Mm. Uh, that's the way we run the company. Tell us what that means. A family-first means it's the family's first. I mean, uh, we have flex hours in our company. Mm. I mean, if we have an employee loan program. If somebody needs to borrow money, they can borrow up to one month of their pay. That's amazing. Uh, for no interest, and they can pay it back over three months. Um, there's a lot of other added benefits that we do for our staff, you know, based on that. Not only does that lead to a great culture internally, but I'm sure it's a draw as talent is so hard to come by in today's booming economy. Yeah, it's been something that we're more like a family. I mean, it's part of the culture that we've built inside of our four walls is that we're like a family. Mm. And uh, people have been very loyal to me and I'm very loyal back to them. The way you talk about your business, it's almost like it's a higher calling. Do you think marketplace 
ethics and kind of faith ethics can coexist? Like, can business be a higher calling? I do. I think we spend most of our time in the marketplace. And so being in the marketplace, we have so much interaction with our employees and with our customers and with our vendors. And because of that, that's where we have the ability to affect the most people possible. One of my favorite uh, writers, Michael Novak, he wrote a book about the spirit of capitalism. And it's kind of counterintuitive to think that one can be growing a business, selling product or services, making money, and still be ethically moral in this world today where we do hear about the sensational stories of bad CEOs or that there's a lot of demagoguery about wealthy people to begin with who are not bad people necessarily. It's not a sin to make money. I love hearing you talk about how this is a higher calling for you. You want to treat your employees who've been with you for a long time really well. Yeah. I mean, look at the parable of the talents. I mean, uh, if you look at that parable, one was given one, one was given a, f- a few more, more, and one was given, I think, five. And uh, the talents, the people that did more are the ones that got more in the end. The person that took the one talent and buried the talent, that talent was even taken from them and it was given to the one who had the most talents. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're all given a certain amount of talents in our life and we should put those talents to use. It's clear that faith plays a big part in who you are. How does that exist in an environment where, you know, in 2020, there are plenty of laws regarding the marketplace and companies and how we can talk about faith or not? Do you have to think about that? Do you have to behave differently? No, I think my faith is ingrained into my business. Um, work is what I do. It's not who I am. Mm. And uh, I'm a Christian. Uh, the greatest commandment that uh, God gives is, is, is to love one another love him and love one another as he, as he has loved us. And so in doing so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we need to put into practice the kind of things that uh, that he teaches us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things when I was early on started the business and people didn't work out, I would just get rid of them. You know, I wouldn't think twice about it. And uh, that, that would be the end of it. I wouldn't even remember their name. And going full circle now uh, with my faith, you know, if somebody doesn't work out, it doesn't mean they're not significant. It doesn't sure. mean that they're not of value. So now we make sure that we give them severance pay. We make sure that we help write a letter of recommendation if we can find them on their behalf of their character. We help them find a job. We try to treat them as a person of significance. Wonderful. So I think just over the course of time, you know, putting some of these things into practice is, is what's important is where I carry out my faith in the marketplace. Can you reflect on a time where maybe you had to really lean on your faith during a business dealing, I know I sometimes wonder how do people who go through major challenges who don't have faith make it through it? I've had several instances that have happened to me. I'll give you a recent one, and then if you'd like, I can give you a longer version one. But recently there was a, a, a customer of ours that kept swearing at our employees using the F word. Mm. And um, I told our people they don't have to tolerate that because that's not the kind of environment that that we work in. Sure. So this, this person was an anomaly. This company was a one-off company, successful entrepreneur that couldn't control their emotions. And so finally, I told my brother, Lee, who oversees revenues for the company, get rid of this customer. Mm. And so he went to get rid of the customer, and he said, we can't work with you anymore. And they threatened to sue us if we didn't pay them all the money um, that we had owed them, that they had paid us in the past. For services you had delivered already. Services we already delivered to them. And I, I said to my brother, this person is being completely unreasonable. I said, let me handle it. 
So I picked up the phone and called this person. And no sooner did I get my first and last name out of my mouth, they hung up the phone on me. Wow. And this is somebody you knew, obviously. uh, He was a customer. Yes, but I I never met him personally. I knew the name. Okay. So they started sending me text messages, kind of threatening me. And I remember thinking to myself, how much money do I have to pay them to get rid of them? And I went to my controller, and she's a very quiet, genteel person. Mm -hmm. And I told her what I was planning on doing. She said, you're going to show a sign of weakness. You're going to show a sign of weakness. And I remember thinking of my time, that's fine, but I'm not going to get moved by what she tells me. What I want to do is I just want to move on from this person. Mm -hmm. and For the good of your company and your employees. For the good of my company, the good of my employees. And maybe it is a sign of weakness, but I decided that I'm going to submit and I'm just going to get this person off of our back. And I'll never forget, I settled with this person. I paid him a, a, a decent amount of money. And I didn't look at it as a sign of weakness. I looked at it as a sign of maturity on my part. In the old days, I would have probably gotten a fist fight with him. You would have you also armed yourself with a few other lawyers and go back at him. It would have been a back and forth, exactly. Wasting money. But I remember a week later, I got a check in the mail for the exact amount of money that I gave them out of the blue from something that I forgot about. A different, a different customer. Not even a customer. From a couple years earlier, from a vendor that I wasn't even expecting okay. a refund check on something that covered the exact amount of it. It was kind of a confirmation for me that I did the right thing just by moving on. I think sometimes we get involved about who's right. We try to win the battle, but we lose the war. Well, that's the humble you again. I mean, that's why you're here today on Up To is because you are so humble. Meek is not weak. You were meek in this situation. We were, and it was a lot of toiling over it. It wasn't an easy decision to do. Believe me, my pride was tested on many occasions, and I had consulted my advisors like I talked about before. And at the end of the day, I made the decision. And um, I, I believe it was the right decision. God knows the intention of our heart. Yes, he does. He knew in that instance for you. Do you think, Fred, much about legacy? You're still young, but do you think about it all? Maybe the Lebanese heritage you mentioned, the story you were born into, we've talked about a little bit. How do you digest all of what you've accomplished? And have you begun to think about what others might say about you? You know, I think our legacy is uh, our, the people that we spend our time with that are around us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the people that we see on a daily basis, the people that we see on the most frequent basis, that is people maybe on a weekly basis. I try to be very intentional regarding the people that are around me, and that starts at home. That starts with my wife, and it starts with my kids in terms of intentional time with them, mm-hmm. and then with my parents, and then with my siblings, and then it works outward from there. And so I think my legacy, uh, which I want my legacy to be, are my relationships. I can remember... And full disclosure here for our audience, you know, we are authentic on up to. You and I, many years ago, sat on the floor in your large home, which incidentally had very little furniture. We were both single and we both sat on the floor and prayed for wives of noble character. Do you remember that? I certainly do. And my disclosure for the listeners is that we ended up marrying sisters. Yes, we did. And I just, um, as I talk to you here, I, I my mind races with so many different topics to bring up. But boy, what a um, what a kaleidoscope that's been put together through all of this. I was just going to say that I know that's something you always say is God's kaleidoscope. There's no coincidences. Yes. But for you, then, I still want to go back to this legacy question. And I agree with you. Like, it starts with the people around you. Uh, one of my mentors, Doug Holliday, taught me we kind of become a mix of the five people we spend the most time with or pieces of those people. You kind of said that as well just now with your family and your siblings and close close friends and associates. But how do you think about in the future, 
how much you want to work, how much you want to um, leave for your children to consider doing, or you said taking care of your employees. Maybe you haven't decided yet if you want to grow this business forever. Have you thought at all about your business legacy? Sure. I, I love business and I always want to be involved with business. I think it's exciting. I don't have a lot of hobbies. I mean, I do enjoy golf, mm -hmm. but I enjoy business. I mean, that's something I really enjoy doing. I enjoy investing in startups. Yes. I enjoy investing in private equity venture capital. Yes. I enjoy investing in real estate. You know, I enjoy different industries. I'm not an expert in any of those industries, but I still think it's a way to be able to be a part of those industries and uh, having your toe in the water. Absolutely. Are there any new industries that you haven't yet jumped into that you might want to get into in the future? Something you're trying to learn more about now? I, I believe these uh, ecosystems are so important, uh, you know, for the future. You know, one of the reasons why we like events so much is so much has gone in the way of technology. So ecosystems, excuse me, you mean like peer groups or like the environment ecosystems? Yeah, I think like peer groups. Okay. Part, part I was going to share with you is that, you know, a lot of it with technology and the direction that the economy is going with Google and Facebook and all these different uh, technology platforms and softwares um, and the way people communicate together, there's never been a greater need for people to communicate face-to-face. -face. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why events have become so successful right now, but also peer groups. Peer groups are so in demand, and the more in common the people in the group, the more they can help each other. Absolutely. That's why I'm such a big believer in AA, and that was one of the original powerful national peer groups, Alcoholics Anonymous, and that group of peers sharing with each other. Bible studies of peer groups, CEOs of peer groups. Every segment of society should have a peer group, and they don't have to be huge, 150 people. And in fact, they're probably better when they're small groups. Yeah, but but relationships are still the key. The relationships are the key. I yesterday just, uh, they must have been really desperate. I was asked to give a speech yesterday, and I talked about, they asked me to speak about private equity because I'm in the venture capital business. And I said, I don't like to talk about private equity. It's so boring. We can look all that up with our thumbs real quickly online. Instead of private equity, I like to talk about relationship equity. And their eyes lit up like yours just did when I said relationship equity. Oh, what is that? So it was my four steps to take to cultivate relationships in the digital age. And you would have thought I was teaching them how to attain the fountain of youth. They were so enthralled with these somewhat basic relationship building skills that you're right, are uh, really in demand right now. So how do you think about relationships now? Like for me, to let you uh, think about it for a minute, I this year, for about the fifth year in a row, I make out a list of 10 people I want to get to know better in the year ahead. And I can't remember who taught me this, but I love the idea. I wish I could give her or him credit, but I include people that I might have already met, but I want to get to know better. But then I also include a few stretch goals of people I've never met, but I do want to get to know, both on the personal and professional side. So are there still people that you think about getting to know better? You don't need to tell me the names of them, but do you, do you look at potential future relationships as being helpful or do you just try to grow with your existing ecosystem? I do try to just grow with my existing ecosystem, but I'm always opening to meet new people. And uh, I love meeting new people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the greatest thing about my career that we get to tell the stories of so many different CEOs that I get to meet these different people. You're definitely a people person. Uh, I was asking somebody about you in preparing for this. And this gentleman who works for you said, every time I go into a restaurant with Fred Corey, everybody knows him, whether it's the hotel, the restaurant manager, the other diners. 
even the servers sometimes know them. So you're definitely a people person at all levels, not just the CEOs. Well, I believe in sewing into the relationships of the people that are around me. It's so important. Mm-hmm. You know, we go into a place, whether it's a waitress, um, whether it's the person who's running the restaurant, you know, we frequent the same places. So why not invest in those people around Absolutely. us? Absolutely. And not only with our time, but our talent, and our treasure. Why not give them our time? Why not give them a little extra money? Why not make them feel important with a special word? Light up their day. Right. Do you... Um think backwards a little bit. I want to get off this legacy question. Thanks for tolerating that because I know you don't want to talk about your legacy too much, but how about the younger version of you? If you could go back and talk to, say, the 21-year-old version of yourself, what would you tell the younger Fred Corey? I think I would have slowed down a little bit. I think I moved very quickly back then and didn't give a lot of thought to cause and effect, Mm. how my actions can affect somebody else. Or there's consequences for decisions that we make. Right. I've spent a good amount of my time through the years uh, rewinding things that I've gotten myself into. So you are, oh, I see, because you moved too quickly. Because I moved too quickly. Mm-hmm. Yes. I often say everything we do, we do better slowly. Yeah. So is there an example of that where maybe you learned from now reflecting backwards, moving too fast, and what your takeaway is from that? My takeaway is hurry and love is incompatible. Hurry and love is incompatible. So now I believe that, uh, which is the greatest commandment is to love, is that we can't be in a hurry and love at the same time. And so, you know, we've got to slow down and and appreciate the moments. Uh, You know, joy is made up of a series of moments. And so if we don't take pleasure in those moments, then we're not going to experience the joy that's set before us. Well, it has been a joy speaking with you today, Fred, and I know how busy you are. And so I'm grateful you slowed down a little bit to spend some time with us here at Up To. I am certain that our listeners will gain a lot from what you've shared today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. Today's episode with Fred Corey left me with so many thoughts. I'm actually going to provide a few more than five takeaways today because I didn't want to limit his many good take-home value comments for all of us. Number one. Fred said, it's never a convenient time to take a risk like starting a new business. Instead, you can take what he called a step of faith. I like that. Number two, Fred encouraged that we need to make the most of our opportunities presented to us and that we should look ahead with big ideas. Three, at the same time, while that is a good thought, Fred also encouraged us to stay in our lane and to grow where our roots are and that that was how we would most likely obtain the success we sought out for ourselves. So these two points are somewhat different, and I think we should maybe have some combination of the two, along with the wisdom that comes from an abundance of counselors, something else that Fred added, which I love. Maybe some combination of both is what he's recommending. Number four. The most effective way to make big decisions is the tried and true method of listing out the pros and cons. And I know that's true for me. Illustrating visually the number of pluses and minuses if you go one way or another can really be helpful. Number five, I previously said it, but to emphasize wisdom comes from an abundance of counselors. Number six, clearly our guest today has within his ethos A cycle of giving and paying kindness forward is how he explained it. Number seven, 
When explaining the family culture at his business, Fred used the example, which I really liked, and I haven't stopped thinking about, frankly, that even if an employee isn't a good fit for a particular role, that doesn't mean he's not a significant human being. It's powerful. Number eight, try not to get bogged down fighting little battles in your daily life, whether they're personal or professional battles. That's a pride problem getting in the way of progress. And finally, number nine, be intentional about who you spend time with. Do your relationships lift you up or do they bring you down? Something for us all to think about there. And now it's time for this week's listener mailbag. Today's submission comes from a regular listener, Jean-Claude, who originally hails from Luxembourg. Jean-Claude writes, Thanks for sharing another meaningful podcast, Adam. Bernie Marino shared several great life lessons, many of which strongly resonated with me. In particular, his comments on indecision and persistence. Merci, Jean-Claude. Thanks for listening and thanks for taking the time to provide this feedback. And remember, to all of our listeners, we want to hear from you. We accept all types of feedback, and we also appreciate reviews and ratings on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To podcast. Podcast.